Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about Golden Orchid Societies. Golden Orchid Societies were groups of women, largely in 19th and early 20th century Guangdong, which is in South China, who lived together and supported each other financially and socially. You might have noticed that when we announced what we would be doing this episode and when I put it up in the poll we had on Patreon for choosing the topic, I was referring to the Golden Orchid Society. Since then... When I did my research, it turns out there is no one Golden Orchid Society. It was not a single organization. There was not like formal membership. There was not anything like that, really. So I feel like calling it the Golden Orchid Society gives a misleading impression of what we're actually going to be talking about. So every English language source I've ever casually come across on the internet about this has been wrong. Yeah, basically. Cool. Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. A good start. So before we get into more detail about that, We have a few content warnings for today. There are not many. It was actually a very wholesome thing to research. How refreshing. Yeah, I learned a lot of very good things. It was unexpected. There are a couple of references to sexual assault within marriage, and there is some sexual content. To start with, I'll clarify what I said like one minute ago about there not being a Golden Orchid Society, because I understand that that probably... Is confusing you as well. I definitely thought we were doing an episode on the Golden Orchid Society when I sat down five minutes ago. Yes. Look, I definitely thought that too. If you do a brief Google search for Golden Orchid Society, you will come away with the impression that this was some kind of like organization with membership and a constitution and like mutual goals and that kind of thing. It's not really. The Chinese word it refers to is jinlanhui. Hui is like a general word for like an association, a union, something like that. And it basically refers to a commitment made between a group of women to support each other rather than marry. Sorry, that was probably wrong because it gets a little bit... Whether or not they're married can get kind of nuanced. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Oh, do you mean like to each to other? Each other? No. Oh, interesting. (laughs) I mean, it's still interesting if they're marrying each other. So, yeah, like, while these groups might be inspired by each other to some extent, and if there were a number of them, you know, working in the same factory or something like that, they would often, like, collaborate for, like, labor union purposes, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. They're not really large organizations. So it's more like you and your friends getting together and being like, hey, let's support each other. Yeah, it's like if all of your friends were like, we don't want to move away from each other, we just want to live the life that we have now forever, and so then you live in a share house forever together. Like every queer millennials thing where they at one point said to their friends, we should just like have a commune together. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. <laughs> it's a bit like that. Inspiring. Um, yeah. Often like women who are interviewed about this will just refer to it as a sisterhood. They won't use the, like, golden orchid phrase at all, and they'll refer to other women in the society as their sisters. This doesn't preclude, like, relationships, romantic mm-hmm. relationships between them. It doesn't really have the same vibe as... In English. As in English, yeah. We've come across this before in East Asia, yeah. and we also came across it last episode in a very different time and place. <laughs> in West Asia. <laughs> In the Epic of Gilgamesh. Ah, yes. I was yes. going to say, I don't remember this, but that's because I wasn't there. You were not there yet. <laughs> Have you listened to it or not? Not yet, no. <laughs> 
So, golden orchid societies were part of a general practice which anthropologists call marriage resistance, which was particular to the Guangdong area in South China, and specifically the Pearl River Delta. So Guangdong is a province in the very south of China, near Hong Kong, and the Pearl River Delta area is a part of that province. And this was largely practiced in that area, although it does sometimes spread to other surrounding areas. When you do hear of it in other areas, they're often described as like tainted with the customs of Shunde, which is the district in which this was most common. So it's a very specific area. So Shunde is the district within Guangdong. Yeah, it's part of that Pearl River Delta area and it's the place where this was like most common. Do we have information in terms of estimates of how many of these sisterhoods existed or how many women were involved in this or anything like that or is that quite difficult to get a handle on? I didn't really ever come across numbers. It is one of the most densely populated parts of China so while it's a small geographical area it's not small in terms of population. It is also and I'll go into this more it was a like largely socially accepted practice in this area, okay. which suggests like being quite common, I feel. Mm. So now you know about the geographical area, I'll tell you a bit more about the time we're talking about. Golden orchid societies and like other marriage resistance practices were most common between around 1860 and 1930, although we know at least that the phrase golden orchid to describe women who made a commitment to each other has been around in China at least since the 18th century. So I'm going to ask you a question you may not know the answer mm-hmm. to. Why golden orchid? So we don't actually know where the phrase came from, but I did see one scholar propose a quote, which I think was from the I Ching. What's about- the I Ching, Irene? <laughs> It's a Taoist religious text, and in there there's this quote which says something to the effect of when two people share the same heart, their heart is like an orchid. A golden orchid specifically? There's a second part to the quote about how shared words from the same heart are golden. Okay. So, yeah, we know that this phrase has been in use since at least 1773, We have a record in a book called A Record of the Customs of All of China. All of it. All the customs. Chinese anthropologists were very ambitious. (laughs) It reminds me of the, like, ancient world thing where they'll just be like, this is every animal that has ever existed. I've written a list. (laughs) Yes. The book of all knowledge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so in the book it reads, the practice of the golden orchid oath is known by the common name of heart-to-heart friends. It is not known when this custom started. If two parties have mutual intentions towards each other, one party would prepare peanut candy, honey dates, and other things as an offering of honour to express her intentions. You know, I think engagement rings are pretty lame, but if someone presented me with, like, candy and dates, then I'd be on board with that. Reasonable. (laughs) If the party accepts, she makes a promise to indicate her assent. A refusal of the gift indicates a no. At the time of executing their vow, if the parties have sufficient resources, they will invite many friends over to drink through the night, and these friends come in droves to congratulate them. Even Liang Hong and Meng Guang could not have surpassed their joy. Liang Hong and Meng Guang are like a legendary married couple in Chinese folklore who are known for their like love and respect for each other. Okay, so that's like very explicitly a heterosexual marriage analogy to this non-heterosexual, maybe it's a marriage. So thus far we've talked about groups of women 
doing this. Is that referring to two women or to the formation of a group? In this case, he's referring to two women, but like golden orchid commitments can involve two women. They can involve a small group of women. They can be a romantic relationship. They can be a group of friends. It's a fairly loose concept, basically. Like I said, there's no sort of formal Mm -hmm. rule for what this is. Do we see that sort of the courtship rituals, I shall say, mentioned there specifically just with one woman to another woman? Or do we see her coming to her like group of four friends and being like, what if we were a team? I definitely, candy, candy, candy. <laughs> I definitely saw mention of like triads forming. Okay. With candy. Um, I didn't see descriptions of the same kind of courtship ritual mm-hmm. happening with a larger group of women. Mm-hmm. It possibly could have. I don't really know. So does it seem then that you'll have like maybe a group of sisters to use that yeah. word? And then potentially within that, two of them will do this sort of candy exchange yeah, marriage yes. analogy thing. Yeah. Yeah. Before I keep going, I'd like to give you some general context about marriage customs in China and how they differed in other parts of China from the Pearl River Delta area. So the traditional way a Confucian marriage works, which is the kind of marriage practiced by most Han Chinese, is that a woman lives at home with her parents until with the input of a matchmaker, a marriage is organized for her. She doesn't have, like, no say in this generally. Like, they sort of suggest options to her, and if she's like, that's terrible, Mm -hmm. she's generally able to be like, no. Obviously, that's not universal. There are bad arranged marriages in the world, but you get the idea. At this stage, her parents are expected to provide a dowry to her husband's family, and once married, she would move from her parents' house into her husband's house. Fairly standard, I suppose, from our perspective. None of that shocked me immensely, no. (laughs) Exactly (laughs) how that is. Okay. So this is one reason why female children were generally considered less desirable in a lot of China, because obviously you pay to feed them and raise them, and then you essentially have to pay someone else to take them away. And Mm. it's sort of considered, I guess, an unrewarding kind of motherhood. However, in the Pearl River Delta area, things are quite different. So Guangdong is a silk producing region, Mm -hmm. largely due to its climate, like mulberry bushes are able to grow throughout the year rather than just bloom once or twice a year. I take it mulberry bushes are the bushes silk is made out of. They are the bushes that you feed to the silkworms, Mm -hmm. so they're like the number one step in silk production. And because of this, it was such a large industry that both men and women worked outside the home in the silk industry. So you would have men and unmarried women generally outside the home and married women would do the spinning of silk at home. So what sort of era are we talking here? Is this around kind of 1700s, 1800s? Yeah, so I'm talking pre-industrial because we're about to have some significant changes. The Industrial Revolution is here, but it means we have this already established cultural norm of young women being independent, working for wages, and like living outside the home, which doesn't generally happen elsewhere in China as much. Thank you, worms. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So in the mid-1800s, major changes start happening in the silk industry. A lot of the processes of silk production 
uh, mechanized. So there's no longer really work for married women to do at home spinning silk. This largely happens in factories and factories tend to prefer to employ unmarried women over married women because they perceive them having less commitments, being more reliable employees. There were early on factories which employed men, but they generally found that this was more likely to lead to riots or to lead to like problems in the communities. When you say riots, do you mean like riots of the workers in the factories yeah. against their employers. Yeah, yes. So there were riots against employers for like working conditions yeah. or riots just to do with the automation in general. It was largely men responsible for that kind of thing. So that employers will tend to prioritize unmarried or single women. Is it genuinely the case that men rioted more or is it the case that people just kind of perceive women as being more passive and they were like, nah, this will be better just because that was what they assumed women would be like. Yeah, look, it's possibly, possibly there were, you know, specific incidences that caused this. Possibly it was just a perception that people had. There were several like genuine, like anti-industrialization riots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I believe the riots existed. Which were generally, you know, whether or not they actually were perceived to be led by men. Okay, yeah. So... What we end up with by the second half of the 19th century is this unique situation where it's very difficult for men to get work and very easy for single women to get work. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's a new scenario, I think, for us to explore. Yeah, it's a very novel scenario. So are we going to talk about the huge number of disenfranchised men this is going to create, or is this just kind of irrelevant to our story? (laughs) It does have some effects. A lot of them migrate, which, again, impacts the sort of acceptability of single women in the Mm. community just because I guess they kind of have to be single women when the numbers look like they do. Yeah, yeah. Another unique feature of the culture around the Pearl River Delta was the idea of women's houses and men's houses. So Mm. unlike in other parts of China where a girl would live at home with her family until she moved into her husband's house, in this area, villages often had a single women's house and a single men's house where women past adolescence would move into the girl's house and they would live with other women until they married. How did this happen? It's not really clear why it happened. A number of scholars proposed that it was a custom adopted from the pre-Han inhabitants of the area. So the Han Chinese are like what we think of today as ethnically Chinese people, but they were not always, you know, 90% of the Chinese population the way they are now. Mm -hmm. There are a number of diverse cultures indigenous to areas of China and the pre-Han inhabitants of the Pearl River Delta did generally have this like men's house and women's house arrangement. Mm -hmm. So we're talking like centuries previously. So yeah, a number of scholars proposed that this was just something that was adopted as, you know, Han migrants came to the area and married with the local people. I guess it also might just make sense if women, if young women are working outside the home, if they're all kind of going to the same place every day to work. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That was another thing. There would often be like a men's house by the fields where the mulberry bushes were grown. So again, we have this, you know, longstanding accepted practice of single women living independently. Mm -hmm. I hope that it's like in this nice happy house just feasting on mulberries. I was just Mm -hmm. thinking about how like mulberries also go on mulberries. (laughs) I've been thinking about that also. (laughs) I've never had a mulberry, so I don't know whether this is like a joyous occasion or not. Oh my gosh. We need to get a mulberry mulberry bush in my schoolyard as a child from which we would feast in an illicit fashion (laughs) as we were banned from doing so. That's the best that way would, to I was going to say that would make the mulberries more delicious, I Potentially presume. so, yeah. Yeah. The last aspect of local 
historical culture that I wanted to talk about, which I think influenced the like practice of golden orchid societies, is local religion. Generally in China at this time, like Taoism and Buddhism were the major religions. So I don't expect you to give like a good overview of Taoism because giving an overview of a religion that's not yours in a brief podcast setting is a fraught thing we avoid. But what is Taoism? <laughs> but do that, Seth. <laughs> So basically, to give you like a one-sentence summary, the like major belief in Taoism is in the Tao. It translates as the way. The character that you use is the character for like a road. Mm. And it's basically this sort of underlying force in the universe that has a sort of rhythm to it mm. that you can follow. Oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And so it kind of underpins a lot of cultural beliefs and that kind of mm. thing that this is part of the Tao. In Guangdong, one of the majority religions was actually called called Qintian Da Dao, which was a, a sort of hybrid religion of aspects of Buddhism and aspects of Taoism and some like local folkloric elements. And this led to some like unconventional practices, which were not generally accepted in the rest of China and were discouraged by government officials, but were allowed to exist here kind of reluctantly because they existed under the guise of religion. One of the things about Qintian Da Dao is that it taught equality of the sexes. Oh. Its highest deity was a mother goddess. This region of China is just like throwing up so much stuff I never expected. China is way more like internally diverse than mm. I feel yes. people are ever aware mm. of. I feel like I know that as like an academic fact, but because I don't know about any of the actual diversity within China, it's just kind of a fact that I academically know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it taught equality of the sexes. One of their other major deities was the goddess of mercy, Guan Yin. She has a whole story of her own. She's adopted from an Indian bodhisattva, which is somebody on the path to achieving nirvana. In India, the same figure was actually a man. Sounds queer. This is a whole <laughs> deal of its own, which would take an episode of its own. In her Guan Yin incarnation, she is a holy figure who rejected the marriage that her father arranged for her in favor of becoming a Buddhist nun. I can see where this is going. I have so many more questions about Guan Yin. That like, yeah. She's so interesting. So this equality of the sexes aspect of this, where is that coming from? You mentioned that it's influenced by Buddhism, Taoism, and folkloric custom. That is, I would guess, coming from the local customs. Okay. Because Buddhism and Taoism generally exist around China and mm -hmm. haven't led to the same okay. kinds of results. A lot of this, I think, actually does just trace back to the fact that women's labor outside the home is valuable in mm. this area. Marjorie Topley, one of the anthropologists who a lot of this information comes from, interviewed a number of women who were part of sisterhoods in Hong Kong and Singapore many years later, and a lot of them mentioned like reading ballads and leaflets about the life of Guan Yin when they were younger, which they found very influential as like somebody who was celebrated and like supported religiously for not marrying. Possibly the most important aspect of Xian Tian Da Dao, which affected the lives of women here, were what generally gets translated as vegetarian halls, but essentially they're like halls of residence which are associated with monastical life, but they're essentially for lay people. And so women were able to live there as like communities of women within the monastic community, but unlike Buddhist nuns, they were allowed a great deal of freedom in terms of 
what they did with their days. They were not required to shave their heads or wear religious robes except on special occasions, which allowed for an inexpensive and socially acceptable way, again, of living in a community of women, not marrying, having a great deal of freedom. So basically I've given you all this background to give you the idea that in this area, you already have established customs of women being independent of marriage. So we can move back now to the golden orchid communities. Ah, oh, yes, the topic, yes. The topic, <laughs> yes. I just realised we'll be in the intro section that whole time. <laughs> We're not in okay. the intro section the whole time as such because the existence of golden orchid societies is essentially an extension of this whole culture. There are essentially two kinds of situations that women living in sisterhood communities might be in. The first one is probably the simpler. Generally in English it's called sworn spinsterhood. So they've taken a vow of not marrying. So okay. when you say two kinds of marriage resistance, these were really like two different varieties that were recognized at the time. I mean, it's not just kind of like, here's kind of two explanations for what's going on. Yeah, these are definitely like two distinct kinds of marriage resistance. Marriage resistance. And they have like specific terms for them in Chinese. Mm. Yeah. So it's not like these are possible explanations. It's like these are two things which women are doing. Yeah. So the first one is sworn spinsterhood, which is essentially when a woman reaches adulthood rather than marrying she would make vows not to marry. There was apparently a ceremony associated with this, which had a number of the traditional rituals of a marriage, but kind of tweaked to Mm. just have her as the solo participant. The one which came up several times because it's referred to in what they're called in Chinese Mm -hmm. is in a like traditional Confucian marriage before the wedding, the woman's hair will be like combed and pinned up by her mother or another older relative with children. Mm -hmm. The idea is kind of that a woman with children doing her hair for her will bring her like good fortune and fertility in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's generally the done thing that unmarried girls will wear their hair down and married women will wear their hair up. So it's kind of a symbolic transition. For the vows of spinsterhood, The hairdressing ritual is still there, except the girl will do her own hair, perhaps with the help of an older relative who is a spinster. But is she putting it up? Yeah. So she pins up her own hair and she wears her hair up as a married woman would Mm -hmm. after this. So she's kind of socially a married woman, but she just doesn't have a husband. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite like that. So she would comb her own hair. And in Chinese, these women are called zishunu, which is women who comb their own hair. There's a ceremony associated with it, and at the end of this ceremony, her parents would throw her a banquet, which an anthropologist described as equivalent to a marriage banquet for a son, marking the occasion as a happy and important one. So not equivalent to a marriage banquet for a daughter? No, because they're not passing her to somebody else's family. Okay. So yeah, it was frequently something which was, you know, considered a good thing, considered quite acceptable. I guess you don't have to pay a dowry now. Yeah, you don't have to pay a dowry. And as discussed, she's probably going to go and work in the silk industry and she'll send some of her wages home to you because you're her family. A lot of these women go on to contribute to their brothers' families later in life. Sometimes they'll adopt daughters out of their brothers' families. You very much like you remain involved in your birth family. So there were a lot of reasons why parents might find this an acceptable thing to do. One of them was, as discussed before, 
work is just really hard to find for anyone except unmarried women in this area. So a lot of the men have emigrated to Hong Kong or emigrated to other areas looking for work. So it's just unlikely that you're going to find a partner for all of your daughters. So when you say work is hard to find for anyone who isn't an unmarried woman, and we've talked about how unmarried women are kind of who people want to employ, would one of these women who, like, for example, she's wearing her hair up and is kind of socially married, is she still an unmarried woman in terms of, like, a factory will employ her? Yes, she's yeah. still a single woman in terms of, yes, she can find employment, she can work in the silk factories. I mean, I guess if anything, she's better because she's going to stay unmarried. Whereas single girls who have not yet either married a man or declared that they're not marrying a man may do either one of those things. Yeah, that's true. So basically she's like the ideal worker, the ideal daughter. (laughs) And everyone's just so happy. Yeah. Like I'm not going to lie and say every parent loved this every Mm. time. You know, there were sometimes women who decided to swear spinsterhood against their parents' wishes or because their parents found a match for them that was unsuitable. Mm -hmm. But yeah, by and large, it seems to be an accepted custom. It also had a kind of a religious element to it. So... Xian Tian Da Dao and Buddhism and Taoism are all religions which believe in reincarnation in some form. And a common belief is that you will marry the same partner in every life. Essentially, you'll find the same lover. Often what would happen is a suitable match would be unable to be found for a woman or a woman would express to her parents that she didn't want to get married. And they would speak to a fortune teller who would confirm that she had a non-marrying fate, which meant essentially that the partner she'd had in her previous lives was like, fine away, not the right gender, not the right age, just like couldn't be married this time for whatever reason. And so they would just kind of be like, well, I guess that makes sense. And so there's no social stigma in that case associated with remaining unmarried. Okay. (laughs) You're just making a face. Well, I'm just thinking, so your soulmate that you're meant to marry each time you're reincarnated is of the wrong gender this time. Oh, yeah, she's coming back. You didn't just flippantly say the wrong gender. (laughs) Good, that's fine. She definitely reoccurs. As in she reincarnates or we'll mention her again. We'll mention her again. (laughs) Okay, just double checking. (laughs) And she'll probably be reincarnated as well. Cool. So, yeah, basically your daughter swearing spinsterhood has the effect of, like, it absolves you of the responsibility to find her a partner. It's good for you. It's good for her. She gets independence. A lot of women just seem to prefer to remain celibate. This is something I encountered a lot, women saying they just chose to remain celibate, whether because it's just they're not interested in sex or a lot of them talked about childbirth being something that frightened them. I know what contraception was available in China at this time, but... Nobody refers to contraception at this time. Generally, the like method of contraception is not going to your husband's house. You and your husband live in a different house? Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Okay. You know how I said that whether or not people were married could sometimes be unclear? Okay. Yeah, yeah. so the second situation that women resisting marriage might be in is what's called in China jia, which basically means not going home. Mm -hmm. In English, anthropologists usually refer to it as a delayed transfer marriage. (laughs) Not nearly (laughs) as catchy. Yeah, that's not great. (laughs) Um, But a delayed transfer marriage describes a situation in which 
A woman gets married at the expected age with all the sort of expected ceremony and then just doesn't move into her husband's home. She'll visit him for his birthday and for festivals and that kind of thing, but she doesn't live with him. She goes back to her, like, single woman's house Mm -hmm. and continues to live as a single woman. Helen Shaw, an anthropologist who worked interviewing women in South China and Hong Kong about their experiences with Golden Orchid Societies and marriage resistance during the 1970s and 80s. So she's interviewing older women Mm -hmm. about their experiences in the first, like, early part of the 20th century. Describes several instances of women coming home to their husband's house to grieve if he died by misfortune, even though they'd never lived with him in their married life. Okay. There are also a number of women who, you know, marry at 17 or 18, as is kind of expected, and will just live apart from their husband, you know, into their late 20s or 30s, and then they'll decide they want to have children now. I was wondering when you said in English they call it delayed transfer marriage, yeah. when the transfer was going to take place. <laughs> so the transfer can happen basically any time. It's sort of an extension of a custom that was already established in the area, where you would go through the formality of a marriage, and then the two participants would live apart for a few years afterwards with this kind of implication that they were getting to know each other before they moved in together. So it's kind of like an engagement as we yeah, yeah, I guess so. Is there then any kind of ceremony when they've decided to move in together or are they just kind of like do it one day? Yeah, as far as I can tell, they just do it. They're okay. just like, oh, okay, I guess this works right now. So um, Tuesday is good for you? Yeah, okay. yeah, basically. So if they're getting married and then getting to know each other and then moving in together, is there an implication there that they might get to know each other and be like, actually, no, or like that you're in this now? I was wondering about that. I didn't sort of find many descriptions of two people being like, actually, nah, except in very specific cases. There are often women who marry and then just never move into their husband's house Mm -hmm. because they are essentially the breadwinner in the family. They'll often like send him money so that he's able to support a second wife so that he'll be sexually satisfied and he's able to continue his family line. And she still gets the, you know, social positives of being part of a family, being married to him. Mm -hmm. Um, So does that second wife have a different status than a woman whose husband did not have another wife? Yes, generally. So the first wife has the highest status and there's a second wife. They often come from poorer families or that kind of thing. I think legally the children of the marriage will belong to the first wife over the second wife. Ah, okay. So what sort of relationship, I realize this is like quite a broad question to which there probably is no single answer, but what sort of relationship is expected between the first wife and the second wife? Like there's a vast range. Some of these women, you know, resent the first wife. Some of them have very close friendships. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them have relationships. Like, it's not unheard of for the first wife and the second wife to be in a sexual relationship. When you say not unheard of, do you mean that that was kind of like just an openly, yeah, I mean, we both sleep with the man and sometimes we sleep together? Or is that like a, like this happened, but it was kind of not talked about, like... I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but basically... In Chinese culture, sex between two women is just not considered very significant at this time. Oh, one of these. Yeah, it's a very, like, phallocentric. If there's no penis here, then are they really having sex? We have no problems with women just 
masturbating together, I guess. <laughs> I feel like we look at a lot of times and places in the world and we always come back to the same weird fellow-centric attitudes. <laughs> so is there a fairly open attitude towards sex in this society? Is it something that's openly discussed or is it something that's kept behind closed doors? I never get the impression in any of, like when any of the anthropologists are talking about their interviews that the women they spoke to were unwilling to answer questions about sexual practices. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't really know, to be honest, what was standard at the time and how open people were at the time, but certainly nobody ever implied that when they asked women in the 70s and 80s, so did any of your sisters ever have sexual relationships with each other? Nobody ever suggested that the women were unwilling to say. They may have been. It may have just been an oversight that like four anthropologists made. Um, Sometimes that happens. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, so it's a fairly normal thing to do in this society to not move in with your husband for a couple of years, especially if you marry very young. So it's often like if they marry as teenagers, they'll wait till adulthood to move in together. As the silk industry becomes more profitable with industrialization it becomes popular to marry very young sons to older women so they'll like marry a 13 year old son to a 19 year old girl because if you tie her to your family then you're the one who she's sending money home to from her wages and then and i guess get six years out of that before they're moving in together if you marry a 13 year old son to a 13 year old girl She's not making wages yet, yeah. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, some women stayed away for a few years, like I said. Some moved back when they decided they were ready to have children. Some women stay away for all their childbearing years. They just never want to have children. And in that case, they'll often make arrangements with their husband. So, like, support a second wife or something like that. Um, And then they'll retire to their husband's home in their old age. Again, I don't want to mislead you into thinking that this is just always fine. Obviously, sometimes husbands are not happy with this arrangement. Sometimes there's not a compromise that they can reach. I did read some stories to the effect of like women marrying, being obliged to spend their wedding night with their husband and in order to prevent him from consummating the marriage, wrapping themselves in rags like a mummy underneath their wedding gown because they were like, well, he can't get in now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What? Yeah, like literally this was a thing that was mentioned. It was mentioned in a number of sources women not wanting to consummate their marriage and thus wrapping themselves up like a mummy. Like, I accept the process that led them to this point, but what is the situation you're supposed to actually imagine taking place when you get to your wedding night and your husband starts taking off your clothes and you're just wrapped up in rags like a mummy? Like, what happens then? I don't know. meant to be that he'll be like, I get it fine. Yeah, I think you're so. you're so tied up that despite <laughs> him trying to rip your clothes off by dawn, you'll still have managed to rest. I think the point is meant to more be that he's going to look and be like, oh, okay, you're very committed to celibacy. Okay, um, so it's actually more about sending a message to him than physically Physically him. preventing him, yeah. Okay. Helen Shaw did mention a story that an interview subject told her, though, about a very strong woman who and she says being the only girl was allowed to learn martial arts with her brothers and when her husband came to her home to try and take her home when her husband and a cousin tried to drag her into a boat she struggled free and knocked them both into the river (laughs) okay so yeah it was sometimes a way of escaping a marriage essentially Mm -hmm. like an unwanted marriage and then from there you know women would return to their like single women's houses or return to sisterhoods that they had already established so yeah there are times when a woman's in like an ongoing situation where she's avoiding a husband 
But generally, it seems to be that this is what both partners want or both are satisfied with. In any case, in either of those situations, whether it's a sworn spinster or whether a delayed marriage. I like that you've chosen to say delayed marriage rather than delayed transfer. That <laughs> yeah. Sounded dumb. I feel like transfer also just kind of takes the agency of the woman out of this. Like transfer is something you do to a parcel. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't love that phrase, but it seemed to be the standard one. Delayed auto transfer. Yeah. <laughs> there, it's fine now. <laughs> yeah. Good. That didn't sound um, more clinical at all. So yeah, generally once a girl swore to remain single or didn't want to move into her husband's house, they would move into shared lodgings with a sisterhood that they would agree to live with and support and usually of maybe five or six other women near their workplace and they would share household expenses as well as plans for the future. So it was common for as well as contributing to general expenses like food and that kind of thing, the women to contribute to a shared savings fund for a variety of future plans, which, you know, ranged from like planning social outings, like going to the theatre, to money to pay for like festivals or celebrations. Often they would save to build a retirement home together. That's nice. So like, it's not just like a share house where you and your friends are just kind of pooling money for no daily stuff. Yeah, it's more like they live together and they're planning for a life together. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some of these women do eventually move back home to husbands. Yeah, There's a variety of responses to women who leave the sisterhood to return to husbands. Some scholars seem to want to make a huge scandal of it and they talk about like sisters feeling betrayed and never speaking to this woman again and that kind of thing but there are also a lot where they're like this person came to visit the house often Mm. I mean I guess you would know that your sister was married and that was a possibility whereas some of them like if some of them are unmarried and have done that ceremony to say they never will marry Mm. and some of them do have husbands you know that you're in a different situation there yeah yeah like I assume there was like some level of honesty and communication about that. Yeah, I would say so. And I also think like there was a tendency in some of the things that I read to want to make something like scandalous out of this that it wasn't. Mm, okay. mm. Which I think, yeah, led to that kind of like she betrayed her oath, we never speak to her again kind of stories. So did you see any real examples of that happening? Like I saw examples of women being kind of dismissive of sisters who had left the sister Like, Mm -hmm. I read one interview where this was a sisterhood which had emigrated to Hong Kong in sort of the 1930s, and they lived together in a vegetarian hall in Hong Kong. And there was one woman who had married once she moved to Hong Kong, and Mm -hmm. then she'd had children and both of her children had died. And the interviewer was speaking to this woman who sort of asked her about what she thought of this married woman. And she said, oh, her life has been very hard, but that's what you get if you leave the sisterhood. Okay. So it's not, it was less kind of like dramatic betrayal and more of just this kind of, you know, life is bad when you get married. Yeah. And I also, I guess, just like, this is the reason that we live like we live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess even if we do have some examples, like all types of relationships have examples where those relationships break down. Yeah, Hmm. exactly. Yeah. It doesn't reflect on all of that category. Yeah. I definitely did come across people sort of saying there were lesbian relationships in these sisterhoods. They were unstable and bad. Well. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, okay. Um, Maybe we should unpack a few things and then revisit that, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, we'll come to that. 
So yeah, often if a sisterhood managed to save enough money to retire earlier than their old age, which did sometimes happen, the silk industry seems to have paid them fairly well. And I guess if you're not supporting a family, like if you're a household of six people or whatever, or bringing an income, like you're going to have a lot of money. Yeah. And so often they do end up saving enough by maybe their 40s to retire or cut back on work. And then they'll sometimes adopt young women from poorer families and like raise them into the sisterhood. This sounds like the potential to just be such a wholesome life. Eating mulberries, retiring (laughs) at 40. Yeah. So these women who are raised as daughters of these sisterhoods, do they then just go on to have like all the options available to them that a woman raised in any other household would have? Or is there like an expected path that's different in any way? Or They were raised into the sisterhood and the women would often hope that they would adopt the lifestyle as adults. Mm. Um, I did see like women expressing disappointment that their adopted daughter had gone on to get married, but they did have that option mm. open to them. It yeah, wasn't okay. like, yeah, being raised in a sisterhood was limiting your options. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, mm-hmm. I guess your six gay parents have expectations sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes a family is six gay moms and some <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I'm sure you're wondering by now about the wild lesbian sex. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've kind of had this thing, which I don't know if we used to have on this podcast, but we've been getting more and more where we do like a lot of groundwork and stuff. And then like halfway through, we're like, so now it gets gay. (laughs) I mean, to be clear, I think it was queer already. Like a lot of this is about celibacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I am joking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like sexual relationships between women is only a part of this and from a Chinese perspective at the time is a fairly minor part of this. So historically in Qing Dynasty China, the time we're talking about is like the very tail end of the Qing Dynasty and the beginning of the like post-imperial period. Historically, sexual relationships between women are generally just considered unimportant. They're not disapproved of much attention is not really given to them. Taoist sexual teachings generally discouraged male masturbation as it was seen as like a waste of masculine energy, but they don't seem to have any similar understandings of like women's masturbation. Sex with women is seen to replenish men's masculine energy. So I think they're just seen as a kind of replenishing force overall. As I discussed, generally sex without a penis in it is not recognized as sex. And so there's essentially no real problem with women having sex with each other. Sometimes it's kind of odd. Men will find it erotic. So it comes up in like erotic writings, but it's not demonized. It's not something which is like prescribed. So if a man has sex with a woman and that replenishes his masculine energy, Mm. if two women have sex with each other, is that just like an echo chamber of ever growing energy? (laughs) (laughs) They will become so powerful. Yeah. Like what's happening? Presumably not. Six women. Presumably not, because I feel the idea of women's, like, ever-increasing power would frighten these people. <laughs> so they're just, like, the HP bar just, like, fills up again, and then they're just kind of, like, waiting there for a minute. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. I apologise to <laughs> everyone. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so to add to that, polygamous marriage was fairly common. As I discussed before, women would, you know, support second wives for their husbands. 
in situations where delayed marriage hadn't occurred, it would often be, you know, a husband and two wives or a husband and multiple wives. Mm-hmm. So sexual situations involving a man and two women were generally accepted. Like descriptions come up in like Taoist sex guides kind of thing. Often you're like your two wives were understood to have a relationship with each other. It was generally desirable for your two wives to have a relationship with each other because if they were in love with each other, then they weren't envious of each other. Mm-hmm. And it made for a much more like harmonious living situation. So when you say a relationship with each other, do you mean they're having sex or do you mean anything from friends to having sex? Basically, yeah, anything from like intimate friends to sex. Okay. You um, want them to get along in some way. You want them to be quite close to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And if a sexual relationship is included in that, you don't really care as the husband. Fair. It's just something that your wives do while you're out of the house, I guess. <laughs> What I'm coming to here is that in a lot of these interviews, the interviewees didn't consider the lesbian sex to be a particularly important part of like what the marriage resistance mm-hmm. thing was about. It's something which like Anglosphere writers will find the most remarkable and discussion worthy aspect of these golden orchid societies. But yeah. while it's there, it's very much not considered shocking. They're not lesbian societies. Yeah, they're not like secret lesbian clubs. They're just groups of women and naturally sometimes two women that live together fall in love. In any case, in as much as there is an issue here, it's not an issue about two women falling in love or two women Mm -hmm. having sex with each other. It's an issue about women rejecting men. Outside of the Pearl River Delta, there are a number of like plays and ballads written about like marriage customs in the Pearl River Delta, which are kind of moralistic and very tragic and the general kind of setup will be like this young girl swears spinsterhood and becomes part of a golden orchid society and then a tragedy strikes maybe her whole family dies and she has to spend all her money paying for their funeral and then by this time she's in her 30s and she realizes that she won't be able to save for a happy retirement and she must get married it's the only way way to happiness so when you say this is a tragedy after she realizes she must get married it's the only way to happiness does it become a romance Sometimes, like, there were other stories where, you know, a woman had a beloved golden orchid sister and then gets married and then pines for her beloved sister. And then the conclusion of this story will be like, I should never have sworn that golden orchid oath. It has caused me eternal sadness. Um, I can't commit truly to my husband. But these are generally written outside of the area. So that's like. About the area. This is like people write plays about something weird and scandalous that they do in Guangdong rather than actually in the area. I can't remember if you mentioned, is this contemporaneous with the practice or is this something people say about it after yeah contemporaneous probably like slightly earlier than a lot of what we're talking about so slightly earlier than that like industrialization early 20th Mm -hmm. 20th century period but yeah not after generally like it's a reference to something which is happening elsewhere in China. I wonder if they ever got a hold of one of these scripts and made fun of it in their house. Yeah, like probably. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be good. For like six women living in this house just like acting out like a dumb, ill-informed play about their own lifestyle. It's pretty great. Yeah. It was something I did read about that like literacy among women in the Pearl River Delta area was higher than much of China. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like, I feel like that goes with women being outside of the house and women working and women just having more independence. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, possibly they did. Just like act out these dumb plays in their house. Snacking on mulberries, acting out <laughs> a dumb play. Yeah, so 
Like within the Pearl River Delta area, though, having some women reject marriage is generally considered a social benefit. A lot of the women that Marjorie Topley spoke to agreed that lesbian relationships were common in the sisterhoods they were part of. They described it as tofu grinding. That's a new one. There were a couple of euphemisms that I came across for that. Tofu grinding was one. Mirror grinding was another. So to polish mirrors in ancient Uh, China, you would rub two mirrors together. Mm -hmm. And the fact that unlike people with penises who have a sticky out part, (laughs) there's nothing there when you rub them together. (laughs) Sex head with mirrors, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess tofu grinding is a similar kind of analogy, like rubbing some soft, squishy things up against each other. I don't know. How, how do you make tofu? You um, mush soybeans and so then you soybeans. press them. Yeah. yeah um, okay. I, I guess you could really get a sexual metaphor out of that if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, I mean, I feel like it's just the kind of you get a like lesbian sexual metaphor out of anything that involves robbing, basically. Yeah, <laughs> basically, I think so. And the category um, of like things that involve one object being rubbed against another object is <laughs> <It's> large. <laughs> large. Yes. yes. Yeah. I think that we should open up submissions to our listeners. Give us examples <laughs> of anything where someone rubs an object against another object. <laughs> anyway, yeah, like I said, they agreed that lesbian relationships or relationships between women, I won't say lesbian, they might be. Yeah. yeah, sure. Anyway, were fairly common, and they offered a religious explanation for why this was, you know, natural and to be expected. So, like I mentioned before about the reincarnation and how your partner might turn up it has not come as back. a man. Yeah, mm. sometimes they're like, well, what if, you know, if a woman's partner turns up as another woman, how can she help being attracted to her? Yeah. yeah. So how do the triads play into that? Or I guess how do any of these sort of like, uh, polygamous relationships, etc., mm, play into the idea that someone has a soulmate? Like, does that I necessitate you having one soulmate? Are you just, I like, know, going through yeah. the centuries as three people getting reincarnated again and again? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Do you have two soulmates and just sometimes you all happen to be in the same town at the same time? Yeah, I don't know. Nobody sort of mentioned how that, you know, reincarnation idea interacted with like triads or polygamous marriages or Mm. I would assume and like maybe I'm wrong and I would hope that I'm wrong that if you're talking about a man married to two women that even if the women are very close and having sex the assumption is that they are both the man's soulmate oh I thought you were going to say the assumption is that the wealthy one is the soulmate and (laughs) not wealthy one is the extra one I was going to say yeah I would imagine that possibly the first wife was the soulmate and the concubine was a bonus just some attractive woman that you happen to marry. Yeah, um, I guess so. There was one kind of tangentially related play that I came across, which was written in the 1700s, I think, mm. about a man and his wife. And the married woman goes to the temple just for like a religious festival and she sees another woman there who is unmarried and she is immediately falls in love with her, like on the spot, mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. sort of unrealistic romance novel way. Yeah. It's a play. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other girl immediately falls in love as well. And so the rest of the play is the two of them and the like shenanigans that they have to get up to in order to persuade the husband to marry the second girl as well. Oh yeah. yeah. That um, sounds like it would make a great film in the modern day. <laughs> yeah. Like it seemed super cute. And the interesting thing about it is that it's like major focus was the love story between these two women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's possible that sometimes your two wives are the soulmates. I don't know. So I guess That's I was cool. just being unnecessarily like patriarchal in that moment. <laughs> Just sort of like vaguely on this note, is there 
ever a sign of there being a hierarchy within relationships within golden orchid societies that have more than two people? Yes. So Anthea Sankar wrote a PhD thesis in which she basically documented the sort of internal politics of a vegetarian hall in Hong Kong in the 80s. Sorry, do you mean she wrote the thesis in the 80s or the hall was around in the She 80s? wrote the thesis in the 80s. Okay. Because of like the time that all this was happening, largely the like primary materials stopped by the 80s. Yeah, and a lot of what she talked about was the way that, say, having a stronger commitment within the sisterhood would affect the other sisters' trust of you as a member of the sisterhood. Like your other sisters worry that you would prioritise your partner's needs Mm. over the needs of the sisterhood. She also talked about seeing triads, which over time drifted towards two of the partners becoming closer and rejecting the third. Mm -hmm. She did note when she was talking about this, she said she was very aware of giving the impression that relationships within sisterhoods were unstable. And she did note that more stable sisterhoods tended to be able to retire to like private homes that they had built for themselves rather than retiring to vegetarian halls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like definitely there were elements of, you know, tension and hierarchy Mm -hmm. within those relationships, but I think they're more like just the sort of natural hierarchies that you have to deal with in any organization than a, like a replica of the, you know, man and many wives Mm -hmm. polygamy that was found in like heterosexual marriages. Okay. When you found your soulmate and she was a woman, the marriage rituals that I described earlier in that book of all Chinese customs. (laughs) I um, asked the book of all knowledge. Yeah, seem to have lived on. I'm going to read you an excerpt from The Gazetteer of Chinese Customs, a 1935 (laughs) anthology, which... Is exactly as you can imagine, but like 200 years later. I just love this idea of just being like, I'm going to write down all the customs. Everything. Which reads, whenever two members of the association, so the association being a golden orchid sisterhood, developed deep attachments for each other, certain rites of marriage were performed. For such a marriage to be permitted, one partner has to be designated as husband. The Mm. first step consists of offering a gift of peanut candies, honey, and other sweets to the intended partner. Once this is accepted, a night-long celebration which is attended by many friends follows. From then on, the couple will live as man and wife. Sexual practices including genital contact called grinding bean curd or the use of dildos are practiced. The couple may also adopt female children and these children are eligible to inherit the property of their parents. Okay. One of them is the man. Yeah, I saw that. And it's not something I encountered outside of this quote, but I know that the like butch femme dichotomy in Chinese lesbian culture now is very prevalent. Mm-hmm. So when so, did you say this quote was from? 1935. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was around then. Hmm. But also, if this is the gazetteer of all Chinese customs, how good is their research? Like, are they just looking at a relationship and kind of going, who's the man? Yeah, that's also true, that whoever wrote that part of that book might have looked and just kind of interpreted it in a way that made sense to them. Yeah. So is the giving of peanut candy a thing that happens in heterosexual courtship? Like the giving of candies is a thing. It's less of a significant thing, I think, because the whole marriage is already arranged. I see. Yeah, Yeah. I guess if you've got a matchmaker and your parents are kind of involved in everything, you don't need to just literally go up to someone with some candy and be like, hey, let's get married. Yeah, so like you definitely do give gifts to your betrothed Mm -hmm. in a heterosexual marriage, but it doesn't have the same Mm -hmm. impact. 
So yeah, you'll notice that that quote mentioned that dildos were used. Mm-hmm. Um, I did notice this. The use of dildos was one of the things that I was surprised about how open interview subjects seem to have been about. Both Marjorie Topley and Helen Shaw mentioned that they would ask women about sexual practices and they would say, yeah, dildos were often used. Some of them were made of fabric stuffed with silk fluff. I guess that makes sense if you work in the silk industry. Yeah, which seems like an odd one to me. Yeah. Like fabric, it's very absorbent. It also doesn't sound like something that can really be erect in any particular useful way. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they were constructed. I mean, I guess it can be like pretty tightly soft stuff with silk fluff. I'll accept that part. But yeah, I'm not about fabric. I guess it's possible to stiffen fabrics. Yeah. Starched fabric stuffed with silk fluff. That sounds like something silkworms are just going to eat. (laughs) It also doesn't. Sounds Doesn't like sound pleasant. Texture, yeah, so I don't know. Sorry. There were several, like there were several references to dildos made of fabric. Yeah, there was another one which was somebody was describing an improvised dildo which was made of a silk tie and some clothing. Um, what? It was a. It was a. It's. I didn't actually put it in here because it was a historical reference from elsewhere. Okay. But yeah, dildos made of fabric seem to have been a thing. I trust mm. that they were that women were able to use them. Oh yeah, like I believe that sure. these existed. I just don't fully understand. Yeah, I did wonder about this. Um, because I feel like when you read about like early dildos, it's usually made of leather. Yeah. I feel like that's yeah. the material I most often hear mentioned in that context. I mean, I guess they did have access to a lot of silk. Maybe it was just that kind of make do with what you've got. Yeah. They've just got so much silk that they make everything out of silk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A luxurious life. Yeah. Um, a luxurious dildo. <laughs> there were also mentions of double-ended dildos, which were carved from wood or ivory. So, yeah, the first source we have for those kinds of things is women interviewees. The second is Chinese medical texts of the time, which were very concerned about women putting things that weren't penises in their vaginas and thereby injuring themselves or rendering themselves infertile. My favourite of these was this incredibly dramatic warning from like a Chinese medical pamphlet. I have dramatic anti-sex warnings. Yes. Women who make a male stalk out of ivory and use it always injure their lives and quickly die. (laughs) That's just that scene from Mean Girls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. That's interesting because you've mentioned that female masturbation was kind of like fine, like no one was worried about it, but clearly they were worried about the use of dildos in particular. I mean, I guess if the thing was that they were like, this isn't sex because there's not penetration. Ah, yeah. Maybe the like, you know, replacing the man with a stick (laughs) is a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. So yeah, no, I suppose like specific sexual practices then were tolerated and others were seen as unacceptable. Well, I was interested in that thing, whatever it was, the summary of every custom that's ever existed or whatever, that mentioned genital-genital contact and dildos, that those were the two things mentioned. Those seem to have been, yeah, the two things largely mentioned, uh, you know, rubbing metaphors and dildos. Um, Mentioned by the women themselves as well? Yeah, yeah. The women themselves will generally, you know, refer to tofu grinding and dildos. I assume that other practices did exist exist people are very creative i feel like those are the two things you come up against generally in reading about early lesbianism i do suspect that part of what happens is that people refer to the sexual practices that look most like like, yeah that was my mm, assumption as well that's something that they conceptualize as being fundamentally 
a penis penetrating a vagina but with two women. Yeah, yeah that's um, true. That was such a vague statement. When you say early lesbianism, like, what are you thinking Well, of? I was thinking of when I tried to and didn't get very far look into kind of female relationships in ancient Rome when I was doing an episode on mm. men in ancient Rome. And also when I did that episode on Arab lesbians, like both times, I was kind of like, why is it always these two things? Mm. I can't speak to the situation with Arab lesbians, but with the Romans, I would assume that almost all, if not all, of those texts come from men. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, which is why I asked you, Irene, mm. if this is something that the women themselves report. And this is, is yeah, this is something that the women themselves did, but I also wouldn't be surprised if the things that they mentioned were things mm. that they felt people would Listen, already understand. Yeah. yeah. Or things that they felt were more socially acceptable in some way. No, and yeah. I think with the Arab lesbians, all the texts pretty much were written by men as well, so I guess it's just people trying to frame female sex through a male yeah. perspective. From here, the prevalence of golden orchid societies declined as the Great Depression hit in the 1930s, basically mm-hmm. because the silk industry was no longer sufficiently prosperous for a woman to, you know, support herself and her sisters and save for a retirement home and potentially also support a husband with a family. So that's why a lot of the information that I've been telling you comes from interviews that were done in Hong Kong or Singapore, mm-hmm. because that's where a lot of people migrated from the, like, River Delta area as the silk industry declined. Often they did migrate with their sisters and they were able to find work as domestic servants or find work in other industries. Sometimes they still managed to have enough savings to build a retirement home. Otherwise they often, yeah, took up residence in vegetarian halls in Hong Kong. Some of them were Buddhist halls, some of them were Tian Tian Da Da halls, which allowed them at least to continue their lives as single independent women living together, even if it wasn't just as their sisterhood, it was with a larger community. For those who remained in China, the change in government in 1949 essentially put an end to what remained of the custom of golden orchid societies. The Communist Party passed a marriage law in 1950, which legislated a bunch of things, many of which were largely admirable. For example, they raised the minimum marriage age to 18 for women and 20 for men and required both parties to be present for a marriage to go ahead. Basic, but good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But like in that also polygamy was banned, which meant that having a husband at home with a second Mm -hmm. wife was no longer as much of an option. And they also just generally, I think, interpreted this as a situation where these women had been, you know, rejected by families or rejected by husbands and pressured the families to take them back. So the remaining sisterhoods were generally those where the sisters had no family willing to take them, even under, you know, the pressure of the Communist Party. So yeah, like it was more like a kind of fade out as these Mm -hmm. customs became less accessible than it was, you know, this stopped when the Communist Party banned it. Implementing any change in China is a slow process. Mm. It's large and full of people. Sure is. This is one of the facts that I have about this giant country. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I now have a lot more facts than I did like an hour ago. It is worth noting though, Helen Shaw mentioned that at least up until the 1970s, the Shunde district continued to have a lower birth rate later marriage age and higher participation of women in the workforce than like the national average of China Mm -hmm. and views of like sexual freedom and abortion are generally more accepting in that area, which again, I suspect traces back to having such a long history of independent working women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
In 2014, The Guardian published an article in which Tanya Brannigan interviewed two women in their 80s who had sworn spinsterhood in their 20s, who were some of the last women alive from the like golden age of golden orchid societies. Both agreed that they had no regrets. Um, one of them, Liang Jieyun, said, A lot of men chased after me. I told them to go away. Tanya notes that she made a shooing motion when she said this, <laughs> which I just found very endearing. I can just picture that so easily. Like an old lady just being like, nah. <laughs> yes. Both of them also emphasized that it was a choice that existed within the like framework of traditional society and referred to the respect and pride that they felt as part of their birth families for the contribution they were able to make as working women. So one of the two women said, superficially, it looks very different to what people thought about traditional Chinese women. People tend to think it was a phenomenon of rebellion. It's true that women did choose to be zishunu, but almost all of them emphasized the relationship with their natural family and traditional values such as filial piety. So I found that interesting in that a lot of what I was reading emphasized the relationships with sisters as Mm. like an alternative bond to the family bond. Although people like generally continue to contribute money to their family homes or their husband's homes. But yeah, I was interested that these two women wanted to emphasize the family relationship. So it's kind of a way to not leave your birth family for a husband's family. Yeah, Yeah. maybe. Which I guess is one of the reasons that women did this. Mm. Yeah, I assume there's many reasons that women did this. So yeah, that's about all I've got for you. When I started researching this, this is very much not what I expected to be telling you. Mm. I was expecting much more a kind of secret society of women fleeing bad marriages and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was very surprised when what I found was a kind of established and socially accepted custom of women just choosing not to be in relationships with men. Yeah, I was surprised by how well, when you gave us that context at the start, how well it kind of fitted into the culture and the place and time and how it just kind of made sense within that setting. Like, even though we refer to it as marriage resistance, it's not like a massive rebellion against the expectations of their culture. No, it's just it's like just, one path they can take within their culture. Yeah, it was just kind of a natural extension of something that already existed, which became possible with industrialization. Yeah. I have some questions. All right, I'm ready. So, in my day-to-day life where I randomly come across this on the internet, as I mentioned at the start, it is always spoken about as though it was one society, like the Golden Orchid Society. Is there a specific place in scholarship or in just like, I don't know, popular journalism, I think, that that comes from? Like, did somebody misrepresent this at some stage? Like, what happened? I'm not really sure. Like, the two major English language sources we have for this are Marjorie Topley and Helen Shaw, Mm -hmm. who did all that, like, early anthropology work on this with like women in Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and both of them represent this as you know a series of disconnected small groups of women living as kind of households Mm -hmm. or as families and that article you mentioned in 2014 did that also represent it yeah that certainly didn't describe like the golden orchid society as a single thing it just talked about it as a you know a rare and dying custom essentially Um, so we just don't know how this confusion arose I'm yeah I'm not really sure how that came up it possibly is a 
you know, are lost in translation because just because in Chinese there's no definite and indefinite article. Are there plurals? Like there are, but not universally used. So I guess mm-hmm. I can see how a poor translation might come up with something that, you know, read she was part of a golden orchid society as she was part of the golden orchid society. Yeah. But you would have to have done very little further reading to continue with that misunderstanding, surely. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of examples just in queer history mm-hmm. across the board where doing very little further reading leads to a massive misconception that lasts for decades. Yeah, true. Where have you come across this before? Like just in random articles online or? Yeah, I am just talking about like random just, articles, like really like pop history, like yeah. listicle kind of style. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't read scholarship on this at all, just like random online stuff. It's definitely the impression you get if you read the Wikipedia page. I think the Wikipedia page describes it as a network of societies or a network of organizations. Kind of makes it sound suggests like collaboration that I wasn't really happening. I think that it's fairly clear how that could just happen from an English language speaker's assumption of the implications of the word society. Yeah, yeah. and that's why I talked early on about the actual, like, the usage of that word mm. hui, mm. which refers to a meeting. Like, if you have a work meeting, that's a hui. Yeah. Okay. It's a fairly like it's a fairly broad yeah, word. Yeah, um, and I think it's been translated as society and that does get kind of misleading. I spent a while thinking about whether there was an alternative word that I could use which was better. I mean, I a like- lot of the time I opted just to say sisterhood or to say golden yeah. orchid sisterhood. Yeah, the fact that that was entirely different to the episode I thought I was going to be making was definitely something that struck me. Yeah, so was- let this be a lesson to you about reading stuff on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Not you, obviously, just, like, the listener. Yeah. (laughs) I have another question. Okay, good. In, like, modern China, among, say, women who are attracted to women or women who are ace or I have a third example that I've forgotten, (laughs) (laughs) among women who don't want to have relationships with men for whatever reason, is this something they look back to as, like, is this part of the kind of modern identity or a reference point for modern queer women in China at all? I'm not sure if it is outside of the academic field. It's definitely something which if you ever read queer Chinese scholars writing about the formation of the Chinese lesbian identity, this will be something they'll mention mm-hmm. in their background. But I don't know how much it's still in the like mainstream the sort of mainstream yeah. public awareness. Mm-hmm. I would be surprised, honestly, if it was in public awareness outside of Guangdong. It was definitely, like, practiced in that one area and Mm. viewed as bizarre everywhere else. Mm. Okay, yeah. Possibly in that area, it's something that people do take as part of their background. Mm. I also thought it was worth just mentioning when I was reading this that a lot of this is essentially about an experience which was thoroughly shared by women attracted to other women and ace women. Yeah, Mm. definitely. Um, And I think we do ourselves a disservice by separating or like trying to claim queer experiences a lot of the time. People do themselves a disservice when they say Golden Orchid societies were lesbian organizations. Yeah, I mean, which that, is something you see all the time. That seems to just be false. Yeah. Like organizations with lesbians in them, yes. Yeah. Hmm. Anything else? I don't think so. Well, in that case, with that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. 
I'm Alex. I'm Eli. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. We lately also have a Patreon if you wanted to throw your spare change our way regularly, I guess. And we've set up a Redbubble, so we have some merch with our nice Rainbow Q logo on it. If you loved our podcast and you don't want to contribute financially, one of the major things you can do for us is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do review us, Eli might read them out loud for you on a future episode. So if you want to hear your own words on air, please review us. So I'll start off with a review that someone left us literally yesterday, which is why it's getting read out. So nice inadvertent timing there, my friend. (laughs) Entitled Fellow Historian Approved. It's from (laughs) Rascal Dude from America. I like that when we're approved by fellow historians. I like it too. It's very validating. Yeah. They say, I stumbled upon your podcast and it's made my summer. Please enjoy being warm. (laughs) Can't imagine it. Not relatable. I had never listened to a podcast before, but after hearing one episode, I've spent the summer catching up on all your episodes. Wow. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. I just finished my master's in early American history. Congratulations. Yeah. I haven't finished a master's. None of us have finished a master's. Jason has a master's. Jason's finished a master's. (laughs) Not in history, though. And I'm beyond impressed by the depth of research presented in such an easy and effective manner. Amazing discussion and presenters are clearly passionate. I adore this podcast. Aww. Thank you very much for that, rascal dude, M.A. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, thank you. That is very validating to Mm. hear that that landed for you. So thank you. I can't believe you finished a master's and were like, what if I listened to 70 episodes of history for the summer? (laughs) (laughs) I have another one that was also left yesterday entitled So Amazing by Punk Cheer Kitten, who is also American. And they say, this pod is absolutely amazing. So well-researched, so thoughtful, and it's fun to listen to. I love the host chemistry and the humorous approach. It is the best. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. The last one I'll read to you came from the day before yesterday, and it's entitled The History Podcast I've Been Needing for Years, and it's by Carcat Effing Vantis from America. <laughs> I think this is a Homestuck thing. Is it? Okay, I don't know. I believe in you. I don't know. I've seen a, a Homestuck one time. I have never seen a Homestuck. I don't know what a Homestuck is. <laughs> Nobody does. I'm, I'm sorry, Carcat Effing Vantis. Maybe this isn't even a reference to Anyway. As a queer teen who found comfort in history and once... Oh, this is what they said, by the way. I'm not just starting to monologue. <laughs> okay, yeah. If you're a teen, I'd have some questions. <laughs> it's a flashback. Anyway, as a queer teen who found comfort in history and once I could get my hands on queer history, since I've entered college, I've been looking for ways to find more queer figures to learn about from a podcast as I haven't always had the time to research. Do we have the project for you? <laughs> Queerest Fact is quite literally the podcast of my dream. The hosts are well-researched, funny, and even through the hard episodes bring a smile to my face. I expected to find a lot of sadness from a queer history podcast, but instead I found out that a lot of people just like me have made it through history living happy and love-filled lives, and that's given me more than I could ever ask for. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Aww. Thank you. That's very lovely. I love when people are happy to discover that queer people are happy. Mm. It's just such a good thing to know, and I'm glad to tell people about it. Yeah. Well, I especially like it when people say that in reviews and stuff, because that's what we've definitely said ourselves. Yeah. That we didn't expect this podcast. Like, this episode. Literally this episode. I was like, this is going mm. to be, like, pretty dark. Yeah. And... It was not. Yeah, for sure. And, and like, the podcast in general, it's something that we've yeah. found continuously. So it's nice that, like, we and the people who listen to it are on this, like, 
ongoing journey of discovery of how yeah. rad it is to be queer at all points in history. I feel like very like emotionally close to our listeners when they have the same feelings that we have yeah. about this. Like that's what we're doing here. We're trying mm. to like share that sort of yeah. knowledge and positivity with people. So that's exactly what's happened. Good job, guys. Yay. <laughs> and thank you very much for that, Rudy. Our next episode will be coming out on September the 1st. Oh, this was my birthday episode. Oh, no. We better wish you happy birthday. It's my birthday, listeners, if you're listening on the day it came out. You know what Alice would like for her birthday? It's more five-star reviews and I will book Anyway, um, where were they? Our next episode will be coming out on September the 1st. This episode was chosen by our Patreon poll, so if you too want us to do the things that you want to hear about, you can sign up to our Patreon. The episode is on The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the 1994 Australian drag movie. So we'll see you then. 